Well, hello everybody. Uh, Martin Kiernan here this week, and it's my great pleasure to host a chat with uh, Professor Gonzalo Beerman from VCU Healthcare Infection Prevention Program in the United States. Now, Gonzalo is the I would call it the terrifying title of the Richard P. Wenzel Professor of Internal Medicine. <laughs> no pressure with that one, uh, but you know his CV would be far too long to go into now. But he's uh, a leading light in the Society of Healthcare as Epidemiology of America, and has recently been heading up the Guideline Preparation Committee. Um, what we're going to talk about today is a couple of papers that he's recently been involved with, looking at virtual infection prevention and control. And the one that grabbed my interest straight off was the one about in middle-income and lower-income countries and the potential for a virtual infection prevention control. So maybe you could outline what your thinking was when you decided to look at that paper and maybe outline some of the quite sparse literature on this subject as well. Absolutely. So thank you, Martin. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you so much, of course, for that kind introduction. Yeah, I think that with the pandemic, we've learned to accept different modalities of, of essentially interacting with others and maybe even delivering care. With that, I'm referring to uh, really the virtual platforms that we have so readily adopted uh, because of the pandemic, mm. which got us thinking if we're doing virtual, essentially infection prevention is in North America working hybrid sometimes in the office, sometimes from home or frequently from home. Yeah. And if we can get much of the data in a, a remote or virtual fashion, and if we can dialogue much like we're doing now with you in the United Kingdom and me in the United States uh, by way of a Zoom link, you know, how applicable is this to some infection control expertise? It really got us to the next level of thinking is, you know, can, can the knowledge, well, let me back up. I think we all know that infectious disease specialists and infection preventionists are really the minority of the healthcare workforce, very small. Yeah. That put us in a greater limelight, if you will, with the pandemic, the importance of infection prevention, the importance of epidemiology, the importance of infectious diseases. So how do we share uh, in that small community or from that small community, how do we share that knowledge and expertise with others? Got us to the inf virtual infection control kind of ideas. It is true that we tried to focus on low and middle income countries where perhaps the training and the presence of infection prevention uh, experts is even less than other developed countries. Uh, and how do we leverage these technologies to deliver some of this, those consultative and assistant service uh, with, with, um, you know, with Zoom and with, uh, with remote platforms. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the theoretical component. There are some institutions in the United States, such as Duke University, the DICON model. Yeah, yeah, they've been doing it for a long time, haven't they? Yeah. Exactly. So it's not necessarily pie in the sky. This is not something that we're talking about that's never been done. Mm. It's been explored in the U.S. with a major medical center, such as Duke, really coordinating much of infection prevention with other satellite hospitals or smaller hospitals that don't have their own proper spe or specific infection control programs. How can that be leveraged uh, globally? That's really the underlying question. Yeah, I mean, I was looking for evidence of effectiveness of this, and actually Dev Anderson published a paper a number of years ago now, I think over 10 years ago now, showing that they did actually get reductions in infection levels at these even these smaller satellite organizations. So there is some evidence of benefit of this, isn't there, In you know, from a clinical outcome? Absolutely. Unfortunately, that evidence doesn't exist in low and middle, middle income countries by and large. Mm. It's really in developed countries that are using or leveraging virtual platforms to address uh, to address the needs of small community hospitals. Uh, my hope is that with with this this paper, there will be individuals, researchers, health systems 
maybe even NGOs that would be interested in this, hmm. to explore it a bit further and use some real pilot kind of examples or pilot studies to further drive these potential infection prevention inter- interventions. Have you got any thoughts of a minimum infrastructure that an organization would need to have in place in order to be able to access a virtual system like you know laboratory reporting or some sort of in a, some electronic system what what would they really need right so to I, be able to interact with somebody like you absolutely and the first the first minimal like it's entry-level requirement and this might seem very self-evident is you have to have stable internet access mm. which sounds silly but there are parts of the world in which there's some instability uh, with with internet access broadband etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's the first and foremost mm. but satellite our smaller hospitals or health systems should have at the very least um, some a dedicated individual to serve as the reference or the point person for infection control matters. That person must have some sort of training. Now there are training models out there. You know, the one of the biggest one that I can think of is the ICANN model, mm-hmm. Infection Control Africa Network, which I think yeah. is a beautiful model of training individuals yeah. across a vast continent, massive continent. Yeah. Multiple different languages, different cultures, but they've been very successful with that. So you need that kind of minimum training and then some sort of standards, standards for reporting or identifying uh, infectious diseases or healthcare associated infections, whether they are CDC, NHSN standards or European standards or whatever ICANN standards for those are absolutely critical. Having all that in place is important, but I think it gets back to one really important thing, Martin, is that unless institutional leaders are 100% supportive of this initiative, are supportive of the purported processes and outcomes that are desired, it's going to be really tough for infection control and professionals to intervene on the ground and to keep that collaborative project going with whatever sort of virtual formats or um, entities they work with. I mean, that's going to be a tricky aspect of it, isn't it? Because you're going to have to have somebody with expertise on the ground in the area to be able to do the interventions and the behavioural change aspects, which is so fundamental to infection prevention practice. So is this an advisory service supporting somebody who's had local training? Because I could almost see a situation where a leader of an organisation might think, well, actually, if I can outsource my infection prevention, I actually don't need anybody locally. But I, I really don't think that would be the case, would it? That is correct. I think that would be a fallacy in, in, in the judgment and the thinking that you that this can be completely outsourced without having a local expert or point of contact person. Someone has to be there, boots on the ground. Yeah. To do simple things such as engage, get feedback, report the processes, even make visual inspections like, hey, we're out of hand hygiene sanitizers in critical areas half the time. That's a problem. Someone has to do that. Mm. And it might need more than one person. It might be a team, actually. The virtual format really works for, I guess, reporting data and also for getting, I want to say this, I don't want to do, want to misspeak, but you want to get kind of higher level consultation if needed. Yeah. And that may be at a major center, government arm, a major university center in a given country, which fans out their local ex- or their expertise to smaller entities across uh, that, uh, that nation or that area. I mean, would you say a role for professional organizations to do this like i can under that sort of umbrella or do you think more like the duke model where you have a a large regional organization that can actually effectively outsource to a, an area around them so that's a great question so i think if we take go back to the duke model i would i would refer to them as kind of pioneers in that in that uh, in that in that area and they put the concept 
it was kind of a, a, a proof of a proof of concept that really played out positively and they published it. So that's really good. So that got it out there. I think that professional societies play a vital role in encouraging uh, these models in potentially funding or supporting research related to these models and even coordinating training sessions or training programs, curriculums for these models. I, again, I refer to ICANN as one of the one of the major the entities or professional societies involved in this. Mm-hmm. Other societies, such as Shea, where I'm a member, which is Society for Healthcare Epidemiology in America, does not currently have that kind of a virtual uh, training process or, or continent-wide training process on the radar. I don't want to misspeak here. Uh, <laughs> to the, the level that I can does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shea, as you know, has been educating people forever in infection forever, forever, yeah. and they do a beautiful job. And they may be the gold standard in many ways, but it might be safe to say they've been really more focused on North America. They do have a Shea Ambassadors Program to train international individuals, which is, I think, wonderful. But generally, generally, the focus has been North America. I mean, what potential downsides do you see to this? I mean, could it be de-skilling of somebody at a local level? Or, you know, are there other downsides? I think, uh, well, de-skilling might be a a concern. I think the major downside would be to rely exclusively on a virtual or remote format to Mm. run an infection prevention program. And we both know that infection prevention program is a combination of some science, some microbiology, some statistics, some epidemiology, but a lot of behavioral change, which really gets down to things like um, human psychology, those kind of things. And the behavioral change components, uh, which is an entire seminar in, in and of itself, <laughs> leverages many things, which includes education, feedback, rewards, and you know, incentives, et cetera, et cetera, which cannot, I don't think, can easily be done with, with a virtual format. No, okay. What do you think are the essential components would be? Would this be you know, early detection of outbreaks or monitoring trends in outcomes? And because, I mean, it's hard enough in the UK getting decent electronic data. Right. So, uh, you know, what what sort of surveillance, minimum surveillance systems would you expect then to be able to effectively run this remotely? And the most essential format would be to have a surveillance system that provides a baseline or understanding of endemic process or endemic infections and outbreaks and really getting quarterly monthly quarterly and even yearly surveillance data which can be uh can be trended what would be great on top of that was is to be able to use some processes hopefully many of which are mined or acquired or documented in electronic medical record system to set those as benchmarks too now that's very controversial as you know sir there have been people who have there have been debates like should we focus on processes or outcomes, yeah. which is more important, et cetera, et cetera. My personal bias, my bias, and not speaking for VCU Health or Shea or anything like that, my bias is that if you focus or if we focus on the processes, the results will generally follow. Yeah. So I've always felt that we need to focus on the processes. Um, and that, and that's, that's, I think, that that, um, that would be a next level of a remote program if you could help with the processes focus you know, with reporting, feedback, et cetera, et cetera, that could be potentially very helpful. Okay. I mean, say you had the opportunity to set one up then. I mean, I've always felt walking the area to be really important to get a feel of what's going on and and to actually understand the people. 
you know, I, it, when I was working in the hospital setting, you could walk on a ward and have a feel for whether infection prevention was okay or not, j- just almost from gut feeling. Right. And if you're running this remotely, that you you don't, you get no sense of what the organisation is like. That's true, and that's a big danger. Would you consider a visit is necessary when setting up a program like this? I think a visit is necessary when setting a program, and there probably should be some periodic visits set up also or mm. scheduled, maybe twice a year, once a quarter. It all depends on how many how many sites there are and how big your, your mothership program is. But I think to do a virtual program or to launch a virtual program, absent a site visit, absent follow-up visits so that you don't really understand local culture, it could be a bit perilous and it may not lead to the outcomes that one, one, is, one seeks. Okay. And going back onto DICON now, it's 10 years since Dev published how, are there any other large screens that have come up after that that you're aware of? Because I've not seen too much, I have to say, because the literature, as you pointed out in the paper, is pretty sparse on this. You know, When you consider how many people have been working from home during the pandemic and how much right. virtual infection prevention has been going on, it'd be nice to see a, a few papers being published on this subject. Yeah, so I think that um, you know, DICON is the gold standard. I think we should all admit that. Hmm. Um, I readily admit that and Hats off to Dev Anderson and that entire team that done beautiful work. So I keep going back to them as the standard. Uh, I think what we may be seeing, sir, is that some some or pro- programs similar to that may exist elsewhere, but we're seeing the bias or lack of publication on that uh, in the medical literature. Mm-hmm. And you know, I hope now that with the pandemic, hopefully in recession, that when we go back to these meetings we actually have some symposia or a set of lectures on these virtual platforms and what we've learned and people or programs share to us how they use these virtual platforms to do or not do certain things in infection prevention and safety and take that as the next launching pad. Again, if we just go to PubMed, we may be disappointed as to what's out there. It's not much. <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, another paper you've been involved in recently looked at staffing levels and outcomes uh, not only, and there's there have been a couple of papers. There's a paper recently by Clifford and Co. as well, who looked at um, at staffing levels of infection prevention teams yeah. and outcomes. And it would be interesting to know if actually having an outsourced virtual, you know, infection prevention advisory service with something local beats a maybe slightly larger but less well educated local team to to actually gauge whether there is a balance to be achieved there when you you know you're getting in specialist expertise but you've got somebody on the ground who's actually maybe their main focus is around behavioral change and dissemination of information and coaching almost so it seems like you have the next great research question right there. (laughs) (laughs) we need to study that uh yeah staffing levels is um i think there's been an ongoing debate in in medicine and, and you know i think who actually has the corner on staffing levels the most is our nursing colleagues. Mm. If there's more studies out there in nursing saying if you've got three to one patient, two to one patient, four to one, whatever those ratios are, you have fewer adverse events, uh, fewer bad things happen to individuals who are hospitalized. And a lot of that probably is true in the infection prevention world also, not only on the front lines, like on the, on the wards of the hospital, but also on, with an infection prevention team. And the question I have is with virtual formats, what would be the optimal staffing level mm. of an infection prevention team? Mm. And I, I don't have the answer for that. No, no. So <laughs> get some people look into that for us. Yeah, yeah. We'll collaborate with someone. Yeah. So are, are you actually aware of any projects currently being set up? 
I'm not aware of new projects being set up. Mm. Um, I think that if I was looking at... Anyway, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this and look forward to speaking to you again and the next edition of Infection um, Control Matters. That we either benefit or we're we're hugely interested in this would be collaborations through the ICANN project or the African Mm -hmm. uh, continent and then parts of Southeast Asia. Okay. Those are the places to look. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if there's any discussion on that at the... um, at the Asia Pacific meeting in Singapore later on this year, because that you know they must have had similar issues. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating subject. You know, ju- I just feel everybody's almost got so used to virtual working. Working, this has been an opportunity to actually show that it does work. Apart from the you know Dev's paper from ten years ago, actually. Infection prevention has stepped up and been able to function pretty effectively during the pandemic right. with many people working from home. So remote working is becoming the norm. So why not share that with lower and middle income countries, which is what your paper is suggesting. And I think that was excellent. Right. Well, obviously, the Holy Grail will be able to find some, will be able to link some outcomes and process measures with these mm. virtual platforms that are really mm. are impactful. And that's what's missing. Um, doesn't mean it can't be done. It's just right for research at this time. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue I sometimes have is that, that surveillance in these areas isn't that great. And I know, um, you know, that there is a group that has done a lot of work on, over the years in lower and in middle income companies to uh, Victor Rosenthal's group to actually try and increase the amount of surveillance going on to actually get some meaningful data in order to be able to uh, to work with. So maybe that, that's a group that might be interested in this sort of thing as well. Yeah, that's a great idea. Einik, Richard, uh, yeah, yeah, Victor Rosenthal's uh, group, the Einik, has really been really front leaders, I would say, in trying to get infection control data from really a huge geographic uh, variety. And it's really quite impressive mm. what he's done. Mm, very really impressive. impressive. Yeah. So um, maybe you chat with him next time. Maybe I will. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I will. He's he's a good guy as well. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I know you're a busy chap and. Uh, Thanks very much for sparing me a little bit of time, and uh, I look forward to see you in Colorado in a few weeks' time. Oh, fantastic! Yes, I look forward to carrying on the conversation then, and uh, thank you again for the very generous, uh, you know, invitation to chat. Well, thanks, Gonzalo. Fascinating discussion. Really think there's a lot of potential in this going forward. It's just working out what's the best way and how you get the biggest bang for your buck, I suppose. Anyway, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this and look forward to speaking to you again and the next edition of Infection Control Matters. <laughs>